following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. What a privilege to hear all four chapters of Ruth today. And as I begin to preach Ruth over these next four weeks, we're taking chapter one today. And suffice it to say, Ruth begins badly. Uh, The worst of times, a famine, three funerals, and three defenseless widows. It was a time of extreme need where God meets his people. The story is set in the time when the judges ruled. Israel would have remembered that period of time, a a 300-year swath of darkness between Joshua's death in Judges 1-1 and the coronation of King Saul in 1 Samuel 10. There were dark days in Israel's history. It was a patch of time that was stained by sin. It was tainted by treachery. It was laced with frightening chaos and, and violent invasions and apostate religion. And there was unharnessed lawlessness and civil war. In fact, the last two stories in Judges about things that happened in Bethlehem show how bad sinful depravity can get. Bethlehem was beleaguered and racked with unsettling, unspeakable selfishness, unimaginable wickedness. Because sin warps us. I mean, people did horrible things. People do horrible things. They went after other gods. In those days, a concubine was ravaged and cut up and sent throughout the land. And this is the backdrop upon which a famine fell. So here you have this backdrop worsened by famine stalking the land, famine striking the land. Here is the land that was flowing with milk and honey, as it was described, now cursed. Their rain became dust. And here is the covenant people of God rejecting God. It was a time of great threat to Israel. Would the nation survive? And Ruth just shines like a ray of light piercing through the clouds. Ruth is like a sunrise. It shows us that God moves his his glorious redemptive story forward via ordinary people that are faithful to him in dark days. There's a coming messianic king. God is going to bring glory out of the ordinary. Ruth is a short story. Ruth is a woman's story. Ruth is a story of women in crisis. It's the only Old Testament book named for a Gentile woman. What we learn in Ruth is that when all seems lost, God helps his people. When all seems lost, all is not lost because God is kind. In our extreme need, he is extraordinarily kind. The Lord who takes away also gives. And for Christians, this foreshadows an even greater truth. God meets our extreme need by his extreme kindness in Christ. Like those verses that I started this service off with in Titus 3, 4 through 6, when when the goodness and the kindness of God appeared. He just lavished his goodness and kindness upon believers in Christ. Verse 1 tells us that In those days of extreme need, a man from Bethlehem went to reside temporarily in the land of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. They came from Bethlehem in Judea, six miles south of Jerusalem on the eastern ridge of a mountain range, just east of the main highway, 
Bethlehem means house of bread. And in Bethlehem, the wheat and the barley and the olives and the almonds and the grapes were plentiful. So it's kind of ironic that the house of bread fails to feed the family. And these four go to the neighboring Moab. They left the familiar for the unfamiliar. They left the known for the unknown. But why Moab? Why go there? In similar times of famine, Abraham and Isaac fled to Egypt. Probably the simplest explanation is Moab was the closest place to Bethlehem where they could find food. It was a mountainous region east of the Dead Sea. There was a fertile plateau 25 miles wide, several thousand feet above the eastern shore. And it was a a very important breadbasket for that area of the world. And it was really a magnet for, for famine refugees. And so they became temporary alien residents Seeking refuge in the land of Israel's long-term enemies. It would have been shameful. It would have been dangerous. Facing a a precarious life of poverty. Uh, They were social outsiders that were at the mercy of their Moabite hosts. What we will see in Ruth is it will lead in the providence of God to surprising blessings. Verse 2 tells us the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, the name of his, their two sons, Malon and Chilion. And names are really important in Ruth, especially at the very beginning here. Five times in verses 2 and 4, the name of a person is given. Elimelech means Yahweh is king. God is king. In fact, that's kind of ironic if you think about it. Elimelech, Elimelech runs away from the house of bread to find bread elsewhere because he probably wasn't trusting God, his king. His wife's name was Naomi, which has this idea of pleasantness and loveliness. We don't know exactly what the meaning of the names of the two sons are, but Malon may mean sickly. Chilion may mean finished and annihilated, might prefigure their early deaths. This family were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, the clan within the tribe of Judah, if descended from Caleb, they would have been a wealthy family, maybe one of Bethlehem's first families, which would make their tragedy even more striking. This would be like Kennedys becoming sharecroppers. This would be like Vanderbilts becoming vagabonds. This would be like Bill Gates becoming a pauper. But things change. Things change. Verse 3 tells us Elimelech dies. She's left with her two boys. Verse 4 tells us they take Moabite wives. And some people were like, oh no, they were breaking the covenant. Now, those unions would be viewed suspiciously, but the law did not explicitly forbid or prohibit a foreigner from becoming an Israelite. And marriage to foreign women, sometimes frowned upon, sometimes condemned in the Old Testament, because intermarriage was going to probably cause the worship of false gods. But sometimes in the Bible, marriage to foreigners was not condemned. Joseph married the daughter of an Egyptian high priest. Moses married the daughter of a priest of Midian. Esther married King Xerxes. Malon and Chilion are not condemned for their choice of wives. In fact, verse 8 tells us both wives were virtuous. Ruth's name means pleasant one or, or friendly. It says that they lived there about 10 years, so that makes the prospect of returning home even more difficult, even more doubtful. 
And then verse 5, more trouble. It says that both Malon and Kilion die, so now Naomi's left without her husband, without her two sons, in a foreign land, with no one to support her, with no one to help her. All three of the men in the family are dead, and now there's a, a big problem. There's a lack of heirs. There's barrenness here. No children. Uh, the family line is in jeopardy at this point. What's going to happen to this family? You have the opening scene just sketching a really gloomy, hopeless reality. Here is this woman, Naomi, driven from her homeland because of famine, and then robbed of her loved ones due to death. And here's this picture of a lonely widow sitting abandoned in a foreign land. It's a bad time. Her husband is gone, so are her sons. Here you have an Israelite family literally teetering on the edge of extinction. And what you see is that Naomi's life is shattered in five verses. That's all it took. Just five verses to shatter a life. You know your world can, can fall apart in a split second. Car crash. Cancer diagnosis. Death. Divorce. Only God knows. Here you have a famine, three deaths, three widows. It's, it's like Job-like sorrow. And the question is, where is this going to lead? Where is this going to lead? And what we see in verses 6 through 18 is that it leads a showing, a revealing of God's extraordinary kindness. God orchestrating great grace and great mercy through human pain and poverty and extreme need. What we see is that Yahweh, God Almighty, El Shaddai, intervenes on behalf of his people and gives them food. Verse 6 tells us that. It's a direct act of God. Only other time in Ruth where there's a direct action of God listed is, is chapter 4, verse 13. So Naomi is out in the fields in Moab and she hears that, that Yahweh has given food to his people. So she thinks it's time to go home. Time to go home. And so she plans it. There's a new plan. New plan. Circumstances changed. And, and Naomi is going to go back home. That's her new plan. My in-laws moved back to Tennessee in 1994. They lived in California for quite a long time because my father-in-law worked at Rockwell in Downey, but California was only a temporary stopping place for them in their minds. They loved California, but they had a plot of land back home. Their plan was as soon as he retired, they were going to go back and build a house. So California was temporary. They planned on moving back, and they did that. Their move was a choice on their part. Naomi's move, though, seems to be a necessity because of her situation. But there's a bright side. You know there's always a bright side, right? There's always a bright side. The bright side is... There's bread in the house of bread again. Psalm 111 tells us that God provides food for those who fear him and remembers his covenant. God provides. You think about God's provision for your life. Sometimes in the most unlikely of places that you, you don't even realize it's a sign of God's provision. Dale Ralph Davis put it this way, there's an unremarkable provision Everyday provision, and he uses the example of garbage, the garbage you take out and throw away, that garbage 
proves to us that our God is good and provides for our needs. Now think about it. You're rolling your trash cans out onto the curb. When I was a kid, I had to, you know, carry heavy metal trash cans out to the curb. But either way, those trash cans are filled with reminders that God has provided for your needs. And so, an unremarkable provision, garbage means that God is good. He gives you daily bread. So there's a a bright spot here. There's a barley harvest in Bethlehem that year. Trouble, yes, but proof that God provides. And so Naomi starts the journey back, and she's got her two daughter-in-laws in tow, and they're on the road. They're on the road to Bethlehem, and all of a sudden, Naomi stops. And she says to her daughter-in-laws, you need to go back home. You need to turn back. She says it three times to them together. She's basically telling them, it's too much. We have no status, no support, no money. We have nothing and we are nobodies. Go back. I have nothing to give you. She loved them. They were kind to her. They were close. And she says, you need to go back home to your families. In verse 8, she blesses her daughter-in-laws by Yahweh. She says, may Yahweh grant kindness to you as you have shown kindness to me and to your husbands. And then we encounter at this place where we see the word kindness. The first time we see one of the most important words in the Old Testament, we see it in Ruth. The word is hesed. If I say it the right way in, in Hebrew, it's like hesed, and now I've spit on the first you know, four rows. So if you just go with me, I'm just going to say hesed from here on out, all right? Hased means to deal kindly with. It means to show covenant love. It means to be steadfast and unfailing. It's super glue love. It's loving kindness. It's grace. It's mercy. It's faithfulness. It's goodness. It's devotion. One English word is not enough for Hased. It combines this, the three ideas of strength and steadfastness and love all together. This is strong, steadfast love. And she, she says, may, may God deal with you in this way. Strong and steadfast love. Here, Ruth and Orpah had been steadfast and, and showing love to their husbands and to Naomi. But the reference here is not just to you know, natural human emotions, not love's emotion, but love's practical outworking. Like in marriage, There's a time of illness that comes and you are faithful and steadfast in caring for your spouse. That's kindness, that's hesed, that's strong, steadfast love. And Naomi is saying, I want God to reward you for the faithfulness you have shown both to me and to your husbands. But this word means something deeper than that. This word hesed, it's more than ordinary human love and loyalty. It refers to God's initiative in showing strong, steadfast love to those who don't deserve it. Now we're in the realm of grace and mercy. That's what this word means. And you notice that Naomi doesn't bless them by their Moabite gods, their false gods. She says, no, Yahweh is the God of Hesed. Kindness and goodness and grace, strong, steadfast love. And she says this to them and they refuse to go home. 
they want to stay with their mother-in-law. They love her. So she makes a second appeal. I think she thinks, well, you know, since I said something good and that didn't work, I'll say something negative because I got plenty to say about that. And she mentions Yahweh's hand is against her. She basically says, my love is dead, my hope is dead. And still they remain. They stay with her. So she makes another appeal. And then Orpah reluctantly kisses her and heads home. Orpah was not selfish in that she was sensible. That was the right thing to do. That was the, the appropriate thing to do right here. And so in Naomi's case, there is one less mouth to feed. She's still thinking about Ruth. So she turns to Ruth and she tries to convince her again. You need to go back home. My situation's too bleak. It's too dangerous. You mustn't stay with me, Ruth. She's basically telling her, don't follow me back to Bethlehem, please. Don't do it. It's a dire situation. And you get to verse 16. And Ruth does a very shocking thing. Her first words in Ruth are some of the most well-known in Scripture. It's a majestic monument to faithful love. But first she says this, and she, she kind of commands her mother-in-law. Now, you wouldn't have known it just by reading it, but what Naomi was doing was commanding her, daughters to, their daughter, her daughter-in-laws to go back home. This is better for you. Do this. So Ruth makes a, 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 a demand of her own, and she says this, don't pressure me to desert you. Don't keep trying to persuade me to leave you. Please stop doing this. This is what Ruth is saying. Then with carefully chosen words, she says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. In fact, it's in the present tense. It's your people are my people. Your God is my God. Right now. Not later, but right now and onward. So in one fell swoop, she renounces her roots, her, adopts the nationality and religion of Naomi, uh, willingly abandons her familiar surroundings, all her religious traditions, and basically she's saying this, from here on out, my, my kinfolk, Israelites. My God, Yahweh. I think that's pretty surprising, pretty startling seeing how Naomi bitterly indicts Yahweh in verse 13 when he says, God's hand is against me. You don't want to go with me. But Ruth's uncommon commitment is really unparalleled in Scripture. It's, it's peerless. There were foreigners that praised Yahweh, for sure, the queen of Sheba and Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. There were foreigners that, that sought the of, of Yahweh. The king of Assyria comes to mind. There were foreigners that confessed loyalty to Yahweh, Rahab and Naaman. But Ruth goes beyond all of that and even confirms with deadly serious accuracy the intention, swears an oath in Yahweh's name, basically says, may Yahweh do to me and more so if I don't do what I said. She, she voluntarily agrees to dire circumstances and situation if she doesn't keep her word. Earlier, much earlier, another foreigner, Abram, committed his life to Yahweh. 
But that pales in comparison to Ruth. Abraham had a a promise of a blessing. Ruth, her leap of faith, no promise, no spouse, no support. She's living in a male-dominated world and she gives up marriage to care for her mother-in-law, to honor her mother-in-law. I just love it. Ruth's character shines, just shines. Here's Ruth, a nobody, an outsider, a Moabite. She's called Ruth the Moabitess because they know she's different and she doesn't belong in Israel. One writer put put it this way, there's nothing kosher about Ruth. She would have been as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. Ruth had no economic advantage. She was going to get poorer with this decision. She had no social advantage. A Moabite in Bethlehem. Hello? No religious advantage. Now she's going to sign on with Yahweh and his scourging hand that's against Naomi. No emotional advantage. She has to deal with negative Naomi. Bad state of mind. Ruth is, is expressing covenant commitment to Yahweh. She is literally leaving her family and cleaving to Naomi. Cleaving literally means to be stick like glue. She's getting glued to her mother-in-law. It's an astounding, astonishing surrender. It's a self-sacrifice. She's giving her life to serve Yahweh. She is saying in the present tense, Naomi, I go with you. And Naomi, I believe in him. I believe in Yahweh. He is my God. She she invokes the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. The only time she does this in this book. Instead of Moab's deity, Chemosh, she says, no, no, no. Yahweh's my God. My life is in his hands. What is this? People have wondered for a long time, what, 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 what is this? What is Ruth doing? Let me tell you, this is a confession of faith. It's a confession of faith. It's a profession of profound trust in Almighty God. A total change of direction, a repentance, if you will, away from past ties to a new tie to Yahweh. I'm gonna follow Yahweh all the way. And and she's even saying it's gonna extend to the afterlife. This is unshakable faith. Ruth is converted. Foreshadows Jesus' words, no one can be my disciple, does not renounce all ties. Reminds us of Paul's words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. He's telling people who, who have faith in Christ, you turned to God from idols. You're serving the living God now. My prayer is that your commitment to God Almighty would have such clarity and strength of resolve. Have you come to that crossroads in your life? Literally where you're like, I have a point of decision where I have to choose to either follow Jesus or follow the world. To follow Jesus or to follow Satan. Have you come to that kind of crossroads in your life? Ruth is believing here in the Messiah to come. We believe in the king that has come. 
If this is you today and you're like, well, no, I'm at the crossroads right now. Well, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. You need to know that he was crucified, he was risen, and he's coming again. He died for your sin in your place. He was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day. This is the gospel, folks. He is coming with blessing for those who believe and judgment for those who refuse. If you're a believer, you know the truth. You were an outsider to the gospel. You were outside of grace. You were by nature a child of wrath, an object of God's wrath. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You needed new birth. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, spiritually, because God gives life to the dead. If you're a Christian today, aren't you surprised that you even got saved? And aren't you surprised that you're still continuing on in Christ, that you are persevering? The reason why is because God enables you to believe and continue. Faith is a gift. I want to remind you of Philippians 1.29 that says this to believers. It was given to you to believe, but also to suffer. We don't want that last part. It was given to you to believe and also to suffer. Ruth, in her suffering, does the countercultural thing. Put your faith in Yahweh. Stays with Naomi. Gives an open-handed offer to go to places unknown for a love unmatched. And all Naomi wants to do is complain. All Naomi wants to do is express her grief. The bitterness of soul had taken root. They get to Bethlehem. Ruth is like unnoticed by the townsfolk and people are just joyous with surprise to see Naomi. But they don't recognize her. They say, can this be Naomi? They wonder if it's her. You ever seen those before and after pictures where literally someone uh, gets on drugs and, and you see the picture of them before and like two years later, after, and they're decimated, you can't even recognize their picture? Well, this has been some 10 years, and it looks like the mileage and the grief had taken its toll on Naomi. And they're like, is this Naomi? And maybe, maybe seeing her old friends triggers her, and she thinks of her name, and she's like, don't call me Naomi. Verse 20, she's angry. She has an outburst. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Marah. The, uh, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Oh, she's bitter in her heart. Marah means bitterness. Marah had a history. God's people rebelling against his perceived lack of provision for their needs. You see it in, in Exodus 15 at Marah in the wilderness on the way out of Egypt. Israel is grumbling. A few days after God parts the Red Sea and saves them from the horses and chariots of Pharaoh in Egypt. To them, at that moment, it meant nothing in the face of their extreme thirst. This is where they tested God. This is where they rebelled against God. And here is Naomi saying, verse 21, I went away full, God brought me back empty. You don't want anything to do with me. She says, the Lord testified against me. He brought calamity upon me. 
He, he destroyed my life. He dealt harshly with me. He caused me much misfortune. Now, before you start you know, piling on Naomi here or thinking, oh, poor Naomi. This is not why bad things happen to good people. There are no good people. Naomi is simply angry for how her life turned out. And in her mind, all God's fault. All God's fault. This is a dark night of the soul. This is a dark alleyway. And the question has to be asked, so is God against Naomi? And a bigger question, is God against his people right now? Bitterness and weariness and, and despair and Naomi's like, I have nothing. I mean, what a contrast, right? You got faith-filled Ruth throwing in her lot with Yahweh, and here's negative Naomi, bitter-hearted, casting stones of protest against God's seeming injustice. Here's Ruth identifying with Yahweh, and negative Naomi, bitter in heart. Well, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that when you, when you get saved and you come into the church... You run into some negative Naomi's. You get saved and you find God's people disappointing at times. They show less fruit of the Spirit than you expect. And then you realize, wait a minute, my sins are in the mix here too. I'm muddy in the waters too. And so flawed as God's people are, God is still at work in his people. And if God is your God, his people are your people too. I used to think that people who blamed God were weak in their faith. I used to think that people who blamed God and professed to be believers, maybe they weren't really Christians. I don't think that way anymore. I've been learning that immaturity in the faith doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. That immaturity doesn't mean a lack of regeneration and life in Christ. I mean, here you have Ruth modeling devotion, right? Ruth models devotion. So what is Naomi modeling? You can come up with all sorts of answers, right? Negativity, uh, depression, you know, being downcast, all these things. Let me tell you what Naomi is modeling here. She's modeling honesty. Honesty. Complete honesty is not a bad thing because you get the truth. Naomi was right about God. Her crisis could have come from no other source than Yahweh. Same for her blessings. See, Naomi's not cursing God. Naomi's not rejecting God. Naomi's not forsaking God. What Naomi is doing is speaking speaking in God-centered terms. And the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. She's blaming God, yes. But in the process of her blame, she is acknowledging God. It's like the psalmist pouring out his heart, singing the blues. She complains, but she doesn't deny God. Do you see this with me here? Her view of God is actually accurate. 
What she's saying is God controls the universe. And at that moment in time, she is, she is shrouded in mystery. She's in a fog. She's in the middle of the clouds. If you're finding yourself in this kind of situation today and you're like, all seems lost, my resources are gone, I was full, now I'm empty, things haven't worked out, let me just say this. Real pain, real God. Real pain, real God. Think about it, when you're driving in the fog, or maybe you're driving in a torrential downpour of rain. Just the other day, we were going to my mom and dad's house in Fallbrook on Thanksgiving, and we were in some torrential rain, and I, I said to Angela at one point, I said, I really cannot see the cars in front of me very well. I can kind of make out their tires, but she's like, well, why don't you slow down? <laughs> but, you know, it's dangerous. It's, it's frustrating. It's confusing not to be able to see, not to be able to have clarity. What a believer learns is that God's with me in the calm and he's with me in the storm. We sing that. God gives and takes away. Job said that. I like how Amy Carmichael put it, in acceptance lieth peace. When the outlook is bleak and you don't see any way of escape, no way out of the tough situation, if you're a believer, hold on to hope because God's holding on to you. God is kind. Even though all might seem lost, God's faithful to kindly carry out his plan. Cry out to God. Cry out with your whole heart to God. Be absolutely honest with God. But don't forget to notice his blessings. Don't forget to notice his blessings. It seems to me that Naomi was forgetting the blessings of God. I mean, what a blessing Ruth must have been to Naomi and the people of Bethlehem. I mean, new believers encourage us on, don't they? So Naomi had Ruth with her, and then, of course, when they came to Bethlehem, it was at the end of the barley harvest. They had food. God had blessed his people. God's always at work when things seem bleak, even when things seem bleak, because he is kind. He's extraordinarily kind. He was guiding Naomi, he was guiding Ruth, he is guiding you, even if he seems mysteriously hidden behind the scenes. There's just glimpses of hope, a little ray of light. Ruth was an was a extraordinarily tremendous asset to Naomi, but she was not the answer to Naomi's needs. Ruth is pointing us to God's kindness. You know, we think we can fix our broken lives. We can't. And I grew up in the era of the thermos, the glass thermos. I don't know who designed it, but mine were always breaking. You know, I'd drop it on the way to school. My mom would fill it up with milk and give me a sandwich and an apple or whatever there was and put it in a bag and, or, or my, my uh, Batman and Robin... Uh, uh, lunch pail, but it seemed like that little latch was always like opening up and the, the thermos would just always fall out and the problem back then was that then you heard the, 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 the rattle of the broken glass and you realize I'm toast for lunch, I'm not having milk. Now, now we're in the day of the, the hydro flask and we think oh, unbreakable. Let me tell you, 
if you put your hydro flask on the back of your pickup truck, in the back of the bumper, and you forget, when you back up, it gets destroyed. I kept it, just, to, just as an example. I don't have it with me today, but I'll bring it one day and show you. Uh, the thing just got, what happens when you drive over your hydro flask is it gets flattened out in the middle. It's just not usable anymore. You can't insulate your, your life from trouble, folks. What did James say? Consider it all, my, all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, steadfastness. Here is Ruth following Naomi into the unknown. Faith risks loss. It embraces what others turn away from. Because when God is at work, your hopelessness can be turned into good. God is with us. All is secure in his hands. He is strong. So just don't forget to count your blessings as you cry out to God in your pain. Naomi had barley in Bethlehem and she had Ruth. That's a lot. What do you have? What do you have? Offer it up to God Almighty. El Shaddai, as Naomi put it. Offer it up to God. Give him what you got. I mean, Ruth is just such a, a beautiful story. Just, it's a story of hope during the darkest death spiral in Israel's history. And Ruth tells a bigger story. It's tied to God's covenant faithfulness. It's a story of a coming king. It's a story of God bringing glory from the ordinary. It's more than a human story of loss and love. Ruth is carrying a message through people and their problems. If you think about the biblical big picture and you think about God's story and, and the progress of redemptive history, and you think about where Ruth fits in God making all things right in Christ, what you realize is, wow, Ruth bridges judges with 1 Samuel. Because God is continuing the line of the Messiah through Moab. So if redemptive history is a road, Ruth is a bridge where the road got washed out. Ruth begins with famine and leaving home. It ends with harvest and return. You got all the midst of gloom, but then this bright harvest fields in Bethlehem and a devoted foreigner as a companion. You got the first rays of faint light on the horizon. You got God's kindness. You've got the king coming. Yeah, Ruth is like climbing out of the dark cellar of judges, but it lays the foundation the messianic hope for the rest of the Old Testament, the promised king fulfilled in Christ. Here is Ruth arriving in Bethlehem where she would meet her husband, where they would have a child, they would continue the family line of King David and ultimately Jesus the Messiah. You got hundreds of years later, a young woman arrived in Bethlehem with her husband-to-be and a baby in her womb. She's misunderstood, she's maligned, she, she magnified the Lord even though suspected of immorality. Here is Mary carrying the king that, that God promised, carrying the serpent crusher of Genesis 3.15, carrying the one that was preserved through Ruth's line. There's Moabite blood in the Savior's veins. 
our Lord Jesus Christ, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken, from, from whom men hide their faces, smitten of God, afflicted, yet he would see his offspring, every believer that God brings into the family, because the Lord who takes away also gives kindness. When all hope seems lost, God helps his people because he's extraordinarily kind. For Christians, this foreshadows a greater truth. God meets our extreme need by his extraordinary kindness in Christ. So when you look at Ruth, you realize Ruth 1 is not the end of the line for Naomi. This was not the end of the line for the Messiah. Naomi's going to survive, and God would bring his king in his good time, in his due time, all for his glory. So let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you for your kindness in our life. We need to thank you for your kindness. May every person hearing this thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for your extreme, extraordinary kindness in Christ, for his shed blood, for the cross, for the empty tomb, and for his promised return. Thank you, Lord, that there is a coming king in whom we hope, for whom we wait. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.